You're listening to the St. John's Diamond Creek podcast, recorded live each Sunday at St. John's Anglican Church, Diamond Creek. This episode presented by Youth and Young Adults Minister, Kirk McKenzie. Tonight's reading is from Acts chapter 20, verse 13 to 28. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Asos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot, where he met us at Asos. We took him aboard and went to on to Miller's Militing, where the next day they, the next day we set sail from there and arrived at Chaos. The next, the day after that, we crossed over to Samos, and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came to the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and the tears all though I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus." And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If nothing, I may finish the race and complete the task Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I'm gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you that the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and, and all the flock, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So being on your guard, remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with the tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. 
I have not converted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and er my needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they, he, they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them the most was his, his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Thank you, Tash. Hi, everyone. My name's Kirk. I am one of the ministers here at St. John's. Okay, let's have a look at this passage and unpack it a little bit. To do that, to set the scene, I'm going to tell you a little bit about our family. So on Saturdays, we like to do the ancient Christian uh, tradition of keeping the Sabbath. So this is the idea of one day a week, you don't rest. Oh, sorry, you don't work, you do rest. <laughs> you don't work, you do rest. No paid work, no housework, no homework. On Saturdays, we take the time to relax, uh, enjoy each other's company, enjoy our relationship with God. And if we've got nothing social on in the evening, then we'd like to do family movie night. And so we've got Kira, who's three, and Jasmine, who's six. And so choosing a movie that's appropriate for those age groups can be a bit of a challenge for family movie night. You'll be familiar with this if you've ever had to run a holiday program or a kids program, or if you've got kids in your family. Uh, you know that it's not particularly easy. You don't want to choose something that's going to like traumatise them and give them nightmares because it's so scary. It can't be too complicated because it'll go over their head and they'll get bored and they won't understand what's going on. It can't be too slow-paced because they'll sort of lose interest. Yeah, there's lots of challenges in choosing the movie. And in particular, what you're trying to avoid is some sort of emotional breakdown from one of the kids during the movie. That's what you're hoping will not happen. And we've done pretty well with choosing movies. However, Kira, who's three, has had a, had a couple of emotional outbursts during movies. But they're not in the scenes that we expected. They're not the boo scares. They're not the bad guy moments, that sort of stuff. She likes to bravely tell us that she doesn't find those bits scary. Um, no, the bits that upset Kira are goodbyes between friends. Farewell moments. Just get her very upset. And she actually, at one point, the first time it happened, she said, I don't like the friendly bits. <laughs> and we sort of had to unpack that a little bit. And basically, she, when people say a farewell, then she starts to get a little bit upset. And uh, this even happened, uh, we had a movie night yesterday, and... There was a scene that was like looking like it might become a goodbye between friends. And I looked over and she was just sort of keeping it together. <laughs> anyway, it wasn't a goodbye scene, but she was got the sense that it might be. And she was already getting a bit emotional about it. So what we actually have, though, in today's passage is a similar sort of scene. It's an emotional goodbye between friends. Paul, uh, who's the main character we've been following in this section in the book of Acts, um, he's saying goodbye to a bunch of people he spent a lot of time with over the years and he's telling them he's never going to see them again and they're gutted and it's this huge sort of emotional outpouring as he says his final goodbye speech. Um, he's been travelling around a lot but he's sort of, his travelling time is coming to an end, his journey's coming to an end and so this is the goodbye. Uh, 
let's have a look at the plan a little bit. What's it, what's it, why is he saying goodbye? What's happening? Well, have a look at verse 22. I would encourage you to keep your Bible open uh, tonight because I will reference a few verses and it'll be helpful for you to just glance down when I mention them. So verse 22, he says, And now, compelled by the Spirit. So he's got a clear sense that God's telling him to do this. He says, I am going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. So he's got the big picture plan worked out. He's heading to the city of Jerusalem. Details are sketchy, which might be quite a stressful thought for those of you who love to plan your holidays out in quite a lot of detail, you know, 15-minute increments on the timetable, this sort of stuff. If you love detail, you'd be going, okay, that's, this is a risky thing to just sort of have, have the big picture but nothing much else locked in. The only detail he gives us is in verse 23, where he says, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. So the big picture is I'm heading to Jerusalem. The detail is it's going to be hard and I'm going to face opposition because people are going to try and lock me up. He knows this is the case because it's happened to him before when he's travelled to other parts of the world and he knows that this is going to be the case again as he's heading towards Jerusalem. So... This is worth just thinking about for a moment and just making a comment on. It's not our main point for tonight, but it's worth just focusing on for a sec. Um, Because there is an idea out there, sometimes it's in Christian circles, sometimes it's outside the church, that says, if you become a Christian, God should fix all your problems for you. Just take away all the hard things and sort of sort all that stuff out for you. And do you know what? Sometimes he does. Sometimes God will miraculously deal with a problem or a hardship that we're facing in our life. Other times, he might work with you in a way that helps you get through it in in a a really amazing way. But it's not a guarantee. Nowhere in the Bible does any of the Christian writers teach us that God should make us like barleys from hardship and opposition. You know, that somehow we escape it when we become a Christian. In fact, the opposite's true. It's guaranteed that when you become a Christian, you will face hardship and you will face opposition. But it's going to be worth it because having a relationship with God is so good. And the fact that he's with you through those things means that you're going to be able to overcome them and, uh, well, at least face them in a way that you just wouldn't have been able to if you didn't have that relationship with God. And so Paul emphasizes how worth it it is in verse 24, where he says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. What is that task? Well, he says, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So Paul's task in life is to tell people about God's grace. Grace is an undeserved loving gift. He can't earn God's love. He just gives it freely. And Paul's job was to tell as many people about that as possible. And he says, there's that bit where he says, I told both Jews and Greeks. What he's saying there is Jews is in his own people, you know, from his nation, his nationality. And then Greeks is in the main language that everyone spoke in that part of the world was Greek. So he's basically saying, my people and all the other people. That's my job is to take the good news of Jesus to everyone. And so he's prepared to have problems in his life and see opposition because he's got this amazing, awesome task that he loves doing, which is to tell people about Jesus. 
Now, um, this is really helpful for us when it comes to thinking about whether Christianity is true. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're just sort of checking things out, welcome, great to have you. We love people checking out Christianity here. Um, Here's a compelling reason to take Christianity seriously. I'm not about to convince you 100% that it's true, but I'm going to give you a compelling reason to take it seriously and keep investigating. And that is that historians accept that Paul, the guy who's giving the speech in this passage, is a real historical person. He's not a work of fiction. He's not just being made up. He's not just sort of some character that someone made up. It's generally very much accepted that he is a real dude who lived approximately 2,000 years ago. And his backstory, which is outlined in the book of Acts for us, is also generally accepted historically. His backstory is he wasn't always called Paul. He was previously called Saul. You can read about what he was up to in chapters 7, 8 and 9 of the book of Acts when he was Saul. To give you a quick summary, uh, in chapter 7, he organises an angry mob to violently kill a Christian called Stephen with stones. And it says at the end of that story that Paul was, Saul was there approving of his death. And then in chapter, uh, chapter 9, it talks about uh, him breathing out murderous threats against the Christians and organising all this legal paperwork so that if he found somebody who was a Christian, he'd be able to lock them up. There's the verses there. And so, but, so that, that's his backstory, right? He's... As far as Christians are concerned, he's the Dark Lord. You know, he's the Voldemort or Darth Vader, the one who should not be named. He was the one who was organizing all the problems that the Christians were facing at that time, the leader of the bad guys. And yet, clearly something happened, and that's outlined in the following verses here in chapter 9, where he meets Jesus in an amazing way, and his life just does a complete uh, U-turn, starts heading in a totally other direction. Uh, and so this idea of repentance where he, he actually goes, no, what I've been doing is wrong. I'm now going to live in a new way with uh, this relationship with Jesus. And so, again, this is accepted historically. This definitely happened. And the reason this is such a compelling uh, part of history and a thing that compels us to take Jesus seriously and take the Bible seriously is that why would he do that? If he didn't really believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus is who he says he is, why would he make such a change? He had privilege, he had comfort, he had power, and he gave all that up so that he could be hated by the people, by his family, hated by his friends, beaten up, imprisoned, and eventually killed for being a follower of Jesus. He didn't just become Christian for, you know, I don't know, a year just as a bit of a a fad. A complete U-turn of his life for the rest of his life. And so when we have characters like this who are not just in the Bible but also acknowledged in history, it compels us to go, well, that doesn't prove that Jesus rose from the dead, but it sure proves that he believed Jesus rose from the dead. And if someone who is so completely against Jesus would make that decision to believe in Jesus so completely, then that is a compelling reason for us to investigate Christianity and take this whole Jesus thing seriously. As I said, it's not 100% proof, 
but I think it takes Christianity beyond just a bit of a nice idea and something that actually deserves a bit of intellectual effort as the way we go about investigating it. So if you are with us today and you are investigating, I really encourage you to investigate um, guys like Paul. There's other characters in the Bible like this and especially Jesus himself. Um, uh, read the books about Jesus, read the book of Acts and see about their lives, read Paul's letters, that sort of thing, and really do some investigating. I'd also just mention now that in a couple of weeks, the last two Sundays of November, we have uh, some more come and see services uh, lined up. So this is where we encourage regulars to invite your friends to come along. Um, and the come and see services are, are we always welcome visitors and we always welcome people who believe all sorts of things. But particularly on those weeks, we make an extra effort to um, be as relevant and connecting with possible, as possible with people who are unfamiliar with church. During those two services, there will be multiple stories told by people from this church about how they came to faith in Jesus. Um, so perhaps not quite as famous people as Paul, uh, but people who've gone on similar journeys. So look forward to that. Come back and hear those stories and invite your friends. Okay, so Paul's talking about this U-turn that he's done, right? And he's saying, I was just knowing Jesus is the best. Uh, I'm prepared to go through hardship. I'm prepared to face all this opposition. Now I'm heading back to Jerusalem to face more of it. But what about the people he's leaving behind? Well, he gives them a warning. He says, you've got to watch out you're going to get attacked. The church is going to get attacked. And in verse 29, he says this, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come among you and will not spare the flock. So just to clarify, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but I'm about to. This is like people behaving like wolves, not wolves problem. It's not a wildlife issue. He's talking about people who are going to behave like wolves. Okay, we've got that. What do we know about wolves? Well, uh, David Attenborough teaches me a lot in documentaries about various different animals, particularly wolves. So let's just watch a little bit of a clip uh, of some wolves tracking a pack of bison through a frozen forest. And let's just take note of some of the things that the wolves are doing in this clip. The bison will not stay long among the trees. They're not safe here. The wolves are closing in, but their chance of ambushing the bison in the woods has passed. Their prey are now in the open and grouped together for safety. The wolves will need to work as a team if they're to make a kill. They circle the herd, trying to unsettle it and split it up. But the bison are armed and dangerous. They will be safe as long as they stick together. The wolves up their game, harrying the herd, a ploy to trigger a stampede and spit away one of the smaller ones. The bison form a defensive circle around their young, horns pointing outwards. The wolves need a bison to break rank. But the tables are turning, and now the wolves have to retreat. The pack focus their attention on the rear of the herd, and the bison begin to panic.
you can see there, they've just managed to isolate one, and then they sort of go after that one that's been isolated. Okay, so what do we learn from, about wolves? Well, wolves are strategic. You know, they're very deliberate in the way they hunt their prey. They're not just like wandering through the forest like, oh, I'm hungry, I'll just chase whatever comes along. And, you know, like they've got a plan and, and they, they often work in packs like they do in this clip. And, and there's, there's a fair bit of strategy to the way they go about attacking uh, different prey. And so it's interesting that Paul would use the analogy or the illustration of a wolf, a hunter who has that sort of strategic sort of cunning brain about them in the way they hunt. And he says, well, people are going to be like this. Now, sometimes it can just be really horrible sort of violence that happens. So there'll be Christians meeting around the world today uh, that are meeting in seriously dangerous situations. They'll be under threat of violence, uh, imprisonment, death, persecution, all this sort of stuff. One of the, there's many good things about Australia. One of the great things about Australia is that is not an issue here, but it's absolutely an issue in some parts of the world. Um, so there's that sort of just out-and-out attack, you know, violent attack that can happen. But there is other sort of opposition that we can face. Uh, so, for example, uh, friends of ours, their church is getting renovated. Oh, they had some renovation plans, I should say. Neighbours disagreed with them. And so at one point, the neighbours, during the Sunday morning service, were setting up giant speakers out the front of the church and blaring satanic death metal in the front doors of the church during the service. You can imagine that made it quite distracting uh, for the people in the service. Right, so it's like intense uh, sort of opposition there. There's a group called Mustard, which I know some of you have been involved with or are involved with at the moment. They help school, uh, Christian students in schools and sort of work with them. And they've got a silence campaign on at the moment. And so this uh, is raising awareness for the increasing silence that Christian students are feel like, feeling like is being put on them in their schools. Um, sometimes it's because the school is sort of having rules and so on that's shutting down Christians from speaking about their faith. Other times it's just social shutdown, you know, that um, they're sort of being isolated if they talk about their faith. And so again, this is this sort of opposition. And I would, look, I would take social, op so social isolation over getting attacked with a machete or a machine gun or something, but nonetheless, it is still opposition that we face in this part of the world. Um, so before, though, we just point our finger to the sort of people outside the church and blame the culture and so on, Paul also says, well, hang on, uh, it's not just from the outside that's going to be a problem. Have a look at verse 30. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. That's interesting, to draw away disciples. Disciples are followers. If you're in the church, you're following Jesus. And there's people who will try and draw followers of Jesus away from Jesus to follow themselves. Here's three broad categories in the way I, I could see this happening. Uh, and this is in a, a Christian church context. So one way this could happen is that people would just say, we're going to cut bits of the Bible. So we don't like that book and that book and that book. We're just going to completely cut them and ignore them. They no, no longer have any relevance or authority in our lives. And so that sort of you know, rebuilds Christianity into something else that they want it to be. And then they might say, well, let, you should believe what I believe and follow me and sort of start a movement that way. Another way is they could add to the Bible and say, well, the Bible's good, but God's given me special extra insight 
And so I'm the special person who has all the special insight. And so you need to follow me and sort of become one of my followers so you can get all the special secret extra info. Um, often cults start this way. If, they, if a cult has its roots in Christianity, it's often because somebody claims to have special extra insight from God. Let me just clarify that. I do think God can give us sort of absolutely believe that um, by answering our prayers uh, and through various spiritual gifts, God can give us some extra insight beyond what the Bible says, but it never contradicts the Bible. It only builds on what's already there. It just draws us closer to Jesus. It certainly doesn't direct us. The Spirit certainly doesn't direct us to start following a person instead of Jesus. So it's not that God can't speak to us independently of reading the Bible. It's just when somebody claims that they've got all this extra special stuff that corrects the Bible and, or improves it or whatever, then we need to be really sceptical. I think the most common way, though, the third way that uh, someone might attack the church from within and try and draw their own followers is to in a really uneven, sort of unreasonable way, emphasize one bit of teaching from the Bible at the expense of everything else. So just take one of the many bits of teaching that the Bible has and go, this is the most important topic, we might as well ignore everything else. We've just got to get this bit right and everything else, whatever, don't even worry about it. That's probably the most common thing that happens. And I would say in Australia, usually what happens is the issues that get forgotten are the ones that are the idols of our culture, money, sex, and power. So let's ignore all the teaching on those things. Let's not talk about them. Let's pick another issue and, and just sort of focus on that and we can sort of, you know, just, just be like that and get other people to follow us in that way. So there's a risk there, not only that we'll have to receive opposition from outside the church, but Paul's saying it can come from inside the church as well, and that we need to be watching out for it. He has a lot of integrity when he gives us this warning because Paul used to be a wolf himself. In fact, he was head of the pack. He was the big bad wolf, like the guy that everyone feared. Um, and so you know when somebody who's got his history says, you guys need to watch out, you're going to get attacked, you know they're going to listen, aren't they? They're going to pay attention. I'll give you a football analogy to help, help you understand this. So on the left is Luke Hodge. Luke Hodge used to play for the Hawks, uh, but there he's wearing the Brisbane Lions uniform because this season he played for the Brisbane Lions against his old team. Now, Brisbane beat the Hawks twice this year. This is despite the Hawks being at the top of the ladder and the Lions being down the bottom of the ladder. So what was the secret? Well, the theory is... Luke Hodge had a whole bunch of inside information on his old team, he used to be the captain, uh, that really helped the Brisbane team prepare for playing them. And that's true, isn't it? Like, if you're Brisbane, you're going, all right, we're playing the Hawks this week. Who's got some ideas on how to beat them? Okay, you know, our vice-captain's got an idea, our coach's got, a, got an idea. Yeah, we'll listen to that. Ah, Hawthorne's captain from last year has a few ideas? I'm definitely going to listen to him. He's got the most insight. And so when Paul is talking about the wolves and being the, the wolf himself, he's got a lot of integrity when he gives this warning and people should, would definitely have been listening. Paul told people about Jesus because he believed in Jesus. Paul went on these massive journeys, mostly on foot or on dangerous boat rides, because he believed in Jesus. 
He was prepared to face all the, the, the many opposition that he faced because he deeply believed in Jesus. The impact of Jesus in Paul's life is profound. And of course, he enjoyed quite a lot of success in sharing Jesus as well. Because as much as some people didn't like what they heard and got angry with him, a whole bunch of other people thought it was really good news and they became followers of Jesus too. And you see at the end here, you've got a whole bunch of people who Paul's probably shared Jesus with just gutted that they won't see him again. The, dark, the, the once dark Lord, <laughs> you know, the once the guy who was to be feared, they're just full of emotion as they realise they won't see him again. It shows the impact Jesus had not just in Paul's life but in also the life of the people that he shared his faith with. And that should be a challenge to us. You know, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know, a great point of reflection is to go, well, how much do I believe in Jesus? Am I prepared to put up with some opposition and some hardship if it means I have the opportunity to share Jesus with other people? Am I prepared to do the hard work to be well prepared for that opposition? You know, Paul says a couple of times, verse 28, he says, keep watch over yourselves, you know, so really sort of guard your faith, watch how you're going. And in verse 31, he says, be on your guard. This idea of really um, being, being ready for that opposition. Our church mission is uh, about knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. And it really irks me when people put those as like they're comp- in competition. That, you know, if you do one, you're not doing the other. <laughs> um, it's not the way it works. Those two things, knowing Jesus and making Jesus known, are designed to work together. You'll be better at making Jesus known if you work on your relationship with Jesus and you grow strong in it and you guard your faith. And you will grow stronger in your faith and you will know Jesus better if you share him with other people. If you've got a bit of a dry spot in your faith, you know, sort of a bit of a plateau, like things sort of just, or even a bit on the way down, you're just like, it feels like my relationship with Jesus isn't particularly thriving at the moment. I would recommend sharing your faith with somebody who disagrees with you. They may not like it, right? So I'm not saying it's going to be successful because as we're seeing, there's plenty of opposition. But there's nothing like somebody who disagrees with you to get you to think about what you believe in a new way, to challenge you to think and to pray and to rely on God. So these two things, knowing Jesus, making Jesus known, need to really work together. And that's reflected in Paul's speech here where he's challenging the Christians to hold strong to their faith and to guard it. But he's also demonstrating just how important it is that we share the good news with other people. This is a big growth area for our church. We are not great at sharing our faith with people who are not Christians. We do it a little bit. We certainly speak positively about it. We certainly celebrate when people become Christians. But we could be doing a lot more. And we could be just better at it. And I don't want to make it I don't want to make the application here like, just try harder, try harder. Because as I said, it really comes from this sense of having a strong, thriving relationship with Jesus. And that these two things, knowing Jesus, making Jesus known, do work together. It's not about trying harder. It's about seeking a deeper relationship with Jesus and allowing that to overflow into the way you speak to other people.
I just want to finish by praying about that now. Lord Jesus, we thank you for making yourself known to those early Christians and in particular uh, to Paul, who we read about today. We thank you that you've been continuing to change people's lives and take people on a big U-turn journey throughout history. We thank you for the people who have shared their faith with us to bring us here today. We ask now that you'd, you'd connect with us through your spirit, transform our lives. If we're already a Christian, help us to go deeper with you, be more confident in our faith, more ready to share it. And Lord, for those who don't yet know you, we ask that you would use the rest of this service to work powerfully in their life and give them a glimpse of what a relationship with you can be like and just how good that can be. Help us to grow in this area as a church. Please bring more and more people to know you and as we share our faith, keep us strong as we face the opposition and the challenge that brings our way. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you've got any questions about this podcast, connect with us on our website, stjohnsdc.org.au or at facebook.com slash stjohnsdc. Don't forget, you can join us live in Diamond Creek every Sunday at 9.30am and 